Well, let's pray together once more, and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word, which gives light to our feet, gives light to our path, is a lamp to our feet, guides us in the way of righteousness, instructs us in the way that you would have us to go, and even as we consider the next four weeks, informs and shapes our consciences so that we can more accurately reflect your image and live out the righteous life that you have called us to do. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the reminder this morning of Jesus and his work on the cross, which, whose work alone is able to cleanse and purify our conscience so that we are free to approach our God, free of guilt, washed free from an evil conscience, having our bodies purified by water, by regenerating powerful grace, and being called your sons and your daughters and welcomed into your very presence. So this morning, teach us what you have given us in our consciences. Help us to understand its role in our lives as we seek to live and follow you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So Romans chapter 2 is the passage in front of you. It's uh, not going to be a passage that we're going to open up in any detail. Um, That's not really the purpose of the series. The purpose of this series over the next four weeks is to talk about the conscience and And we're going to survey a lot of texts in Scripture. So we're going to be in a a bit of a topical mode the next four weeks. Uh, We tend to do that once or twice a year. We'll do a short topical series of some sort. And so this summer, uh, during the month of July, we're going to consider the issue of the conscience. And I I don't know if you've ever thought about it or ever heard sermons on it. It it really strikes me as as I've read over the years and considered the way our forefathers in the faith, older Christians, I'm talking about 100, 200, and 300, even four or 500 years ago, spoke of the conscience much, much more frequently than I think we do today. So I think Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Art of Turning, a small booklet on the conscience, is right when he remarks the following. As much as the Bible talks about the conscience, it's remarkable how little we hear of it today. It's not something pastors often teach on, and not something most believers consider in daily discipleship. And yet, if you read our ancestors in the faith, especially the Puritans, you will find that they were obsessed with the conscience, in a good way. They paid careful attention to how the conscience works, the role it plays in bringing people to Christ, and how indispensable it is in leading us in holiness." If that's true, and I think it is, if you survey the New Testament and you pay attention to the word conscience, it shows up quite a bit. We're going to look at several of those passages today. You'll see that it's an important aspect of our image-bearing, that is our humanity, but also an important aspect of our daily discipleship to Jesus, and I hope to show you that significance over the next several weeks. We're going to consider four areas. This morning, we're just going to talk about what the conscience is. We're just going to define it. It's going to feel a little more Bible study Okay, I hope you're okay with that. It's gonna, I'm really going to walk you through the process of when you encounter a topic that you don't really know a whole lot about, how do you find out about it? How do you go about discovering something about what the Bible teaches about a topic that perhaps you're unfamiliar with? And that's what I'm going to walk you through. I'm going to walk you through that process this morning. We're going to review the verses. We're going to synthesize the findings. We're going to craft a definition. And then we're going to apply the conclusions. That's where we're going this morning. But over the next several weeks, after we've defined it, we're going to move through the various aspects of the conscience that are spoken of in the New Testament. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at how or when does the conscience go badly? How is the conscience made bad? And what are the effects of a bad conscience on our lives? 
And then, Lord willing, two weeks from now, we're going to consider how does the conscience, conscience get recalibrated, sanctified, purified? How is it made clean and right again so that we can live rightly before God? And then finally, perhaps maybe the most important sermon that I'll preach on the conscience is in our fourth week on considering others. The New Testament has a lot to say about considering the consciences of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a hugely important topic, and I hope to dive into it in a few weeks from now. So that's where we're going over the next several weeks during the month of July. This morning, however, we're going to consider the clarification of conscience, that is, what is it? So first of all, I want us to review the verses in the New Testament that speak of the conscience. Now, we're going to go quite quickly. I'm going to, they're going to be behind me on the screen, so you don't have to, we're not going to try to turn to all those. Uh, but we're going to survey a, a little over 20 verses and just walk through them very quickly. I just want to get them in front of you so that you can see, and I'll try to provide a little bit of context as we move along. First is in Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Paul says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Acts 24, 16. So I will always take pains to have a clear conscience, Paul says, toward both God and men. So we see in just those two verses in the book of Acts, there's such a thing as a good conscience. There's such a thing as a clear conscience. Romans chapter 2, verse 15, a verse that we're going to look at in some detail a little bit later in the sermon. Paul writes the following, which we just read. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So there's a function of the conscience right there. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 13, verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, referring to governmental authorities. Then we move on to 1 Corinthians. Paul speaks quite a bit of the conscience in the second half of 1 Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So there we hear of a weak or a defiled conscience. Talk about that a little bit more next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 8.10 speaks of the weak conscience as well, for it says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? 1 Corinthians 8.12, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 25 and 27. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. 1 Corinthians 10, 28 and 29. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? 2 Corinthians 1.12 For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so 
toward you. 2 Corinthians 4.2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's just stop there for a second. Think about that. That is amazing. That's a summary of Paul's apostolic ministry. His whole goal as an apostle is what? He says, my aim in all of my instruction is love. But love has to come from certain things. Namely, it comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's amazing how much Paul thought of the role of the conscience and even our ability to love. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. A conscience, an understanding of conscience is necessary to the very thing we talked about last week. That is perseverance. Continuing on in the faith. Making it all the way to heaven. Notice in what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 1.19 is that the reason that some have shipwrecked their faith, that is apostatized, that is walked away from Jesus decisively, is because they failed to have good faith or hold good faith and hold faith in a good conscience. 1 Timothy 3.9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's referring to the qualifications for deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, talking about false teachers saying that through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So there's another aspect of a bad conscience, a seared conscience. 2 Timothy 1.3 talks about another aspect of a good conscience. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. A few more in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's the gospel. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 that Jonathan read for us at the beginning of our service. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience declaring to act, desiring to act honorably in all things. A few more passages in 1 Peter. These are the last two. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There you have it. A New Testament survey of the conscience. That's not every single verse, but that's, that's most verses 
that the uh, New Testament talks about when it refers to the conscience. So we reviewed the verses. Now let me quickly synthesize what we've seen. Point number two. I want to talk about two areas. I want to talk about the state of the conscience and the role of the conscience, because that seems to be the two main emphases in the New Testament. Namely, in what conditions can the conscience exist? And then what purpose does the conscience have? So that's what I mean by the state of the conscience and the role of the conscience. In what conditions can the conscience exist? And then secondly, what role does the conscience have or what purpose does the conscience have? First of all, we can talk about the state of the conscience or in what conditions it exists in really two ways, negatively and positively, right? That's overwhelmingly what we see in the New Testament is the conscience referred to in either a negative way, not the conscience itself, mind you, the conscience is good. The conscience is a good gift, but nevertheless, it can exist in two conditions, one negative and one positive. The negative conditions can be weak, wounded, defiled, emboldened to sin, evil, guilty, or seared. We'll look at that more, Lord willing, next week as we dive into the bad, negative side of the conscience. And then positively, the conscience can be good in the sense of being blameless, clear, clean, pure, and it can also be cleansed, perfected, purified, washed, purged, and sprinkled clean. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks when we dive into a good conscience and what that means. So that's, those are the states in which the conscience can exist. And I know I have not defined it yet. We will get there. I just want you to see, we're just, we surveyed the scriptures. Now we're, now we're trying to, to get at what the scriptures are emphasizing with the conscience, even though we haven't defined it. We've seen that it, it, it can exist in, in a couple of different conditions. It exists in a positive, good state or a negative, bad state. Secondly, the role of the conscience or the purpose of it. Now, there's a lot in the, in the New Testament on what the conscience does, and we'll just survey it here. The conscience can bear witness or confirm. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. That's one of its main functions, is to bear witness to us in whether our conduct is right or wrong. The conscience can judge and lead us to be judgmental. That is, pronouncing judgments on another person's freedoms. We need to be careful of that. That's why we're going to spend a, a whole sermon on considering the conscience and its relationships in the church. The, the conscience can also guide you and lead you to act in a certain way. It can lead you to either accuse or defend yourself, based on how that moment your conscience is bearing witness to you. Someone might say you're guilty, but your conscience is not condemning you that you're guilty. Or someone might be saying you're innocent, and your conscience might be bearing guilt against you. Those are all ways that the conscience can affect our behavior or lead us to act in certain ways. It can also lead you to submit to authorities, as, as Paul says in Romans 13 that our conscience ought to do. But it can also lead you to disobey authorities when those authorities are calling you to disobey God. It can lead you to not bother asking where the meat came from. That's a Corinthian problem. That's not a uniquely Western American one. 
but it certainly was for the Corinthians and their meat markets and temples being, and, and, and offerings to idols in the temple. And it can lead you to not eat meat that someone tells you is sacrificed to idols. The conscience can do both. It can say, well, who cares? It's just meat. And another person can say, wait, we need to care because that meat was sacrificed to an idol. So that's the findings. Those are, that's, that, those are the synthesis of what we see in the New Testament on the state and the role of the conscience. And that's really going to frame the rest of the series and how we, how we move on from here. So we've reviewed the verses. We've synthesized the findings. Point number three, let's spend some time crafting a definition. Let's craft a definition, and then we're going to spend the rest of the sermon applying some of these conclusions in an introductory kind of way. Now, the classic explanation of how the conscience works, or at least how it's supposed to work, is found here in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Let's read those verses again. Again, I'm not going to give any kind of extensive exegesis or exposition of these two verses, but I just want to highlight one particular aspect that Paul is emphasizing on the way the conscience functions. So Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, For when Gentiles, that's us, non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Now, I'm not going to talk about that. A lot of theological ink has been spilled on that phrase, and that's not our purpose this morning to unpack what Paul means by Gentiles who don't have the law, nevertheless doing what the law requires. But he does give us some explanation as to why the Gentiles who lacked the external authoritative moral law of God that the people of Israel possessed, chiefly embodied in the Ten Commandments, but also listed in various ceremonial and judicial forms as well, but laying out that whole law code, the Gentiles didn't have that. That was reserved for the people of Israel. But nevertheless, Gentiles behave in ways that are unlawful, and they behave in ways that are lawful, and they seem to be driven by some inner compulsions even though they lack an external, hey, this is right, this is wrong, you should be doing this, you should not be doing this. So what explains the Gentiles' behavior? That's in part of what Paul's talking about here, and he's trying to underscore also God's righteous judgment of the Gentiles, because how can he judge them about a law they never had? You don't judge people based on a law that they don't possess, so Paul says they do, they do operate according to law, even though they lack an external code the way the people of Israel had. And he explains this in verse 15. They show, that is the Gentiles show, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So they've got a conscience, they've got a work of the law that's being written on their hearts, and their conscience is bearing witness to them. Now what is the what is the essence of what that bear witness means? Let's keep reading verse 15. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So we get there a main function of the conscience. That is, it is something within us that bears witness to us and accuses or excuses us excuses our behavior or accuses us in our behavior let me try to put it in a in a in a metaphor or in an illustration 
The conscience acts as both a prosecuting attorney and a defense attorney. It's both. First, the conscience is a prosecuting attorney in that it convicts us of sin when we violate God's law, when we disobey God's word, when we do something that we know is, is, is wrong in God's sight. The conscience keeps us alive to our sin. It gives us a pit in our stomach. It registers guilt in our souls. It reminds us of our offenses against God. It can keep us up at night. When working properly, the conscience is that sixth sense within us which impresses upon us feelings of guilt for deeds that we should not have done or deeds that we should have done which we did not. So that's how the conscience functions as a prosecuting attorney. But secondly, on the other hand, the conscience functions as a defense attorney. Now, we see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 15 as well. As we see Paul talk about the prosecuting attorney when it, he says that the, con, the conscience bearing witness accuses us, so he says here in chapter 2, verse 15 as well, that the conscience functions, functions as a defense attorney to excuse us. We usually think of the conscience as that little voice in our head that tells us that our mom was right or that we were totally bad to the bone. And that can be the work of conscience, but the conscience also, when it's functioning well, should defend us against false allegations. Notice how Paul says it. He says they're conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. Now, Paul's not making a moral judgment here in Romans chapter 2 about whether their accusation or ex excusing is right. He's not saying, well, every time the Gentile's conscience excuses them, they're right to do so. Or every time the Gentile's conscience accuses them, it's right to do so. He's not making a moral judgment on how their conscience is functioning. He's just talking about the function of the conscience. And he says it functions as a prosecuting attorney and it functions as a defense attorney. Our conscience helps us to face the accusations of the devil, our enemies, slander. And that's what Paul says in effect in 2 Corinthians 1.12 when he says, my conscience is clear. You may really be mad at me for not coming to visit you, which the Corinthians were, but as far as I know in my own heart, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, I've not done anything wrong. So let's try to define it in a very simple statement. What is the conscience? Here's my attempt at a definition. The conscience is the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. Read it one more time. The conscience is the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. Joe Carter, writing for the Gospel Coalition, defines the conscience as an internal, rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. An internal, rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. So, the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. It functions as a guide to help you conform to moral standards and judges you for how you conform to them. Say that one more time. The conscience functions as a guide, that's its first function, to help you conform 
to moral standards and judges you for how you conform to them. So let me put it this way. The conscience focuses backward and forward. All right? As a guide, our conscience looks forward and warns you before you do wrong and urges you to do what is right. As it looks into the future with a moral decision to make, if the conscience is functioning correctly, it will guide you to assess that situation based on its rightness or wrongness and guide you as to how you're to respond. But it also has a backward function. That is, it looks backward, but not as a guide, but as a judge. And it accuses you and condemns you when you do wrong, and it commends and defends you when you have done right. So the conscience kind of goes in two directions. It looks forward as a guide, and it looks backward as a judge. And in those two senses, it functions as in its bearing witness capacity. It's bearing witness to us. It's telling us something. It's guiding us. It's judging us. It's informing us about how we are to behave or whether we did behave as we ought to have behaved. So the conscience, definition again, is the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad and bears witness against us as our guide and our judge. So that's the definition. That's the definition we're going to be functioning with the next several weeks. That's the definition that's going to guide us as we talk more in detail about the conscience. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time applying some of the conclusions that we've seen this morning, and I've got six of them. i got six of them. So if you, they'll be on the screen behind me. If you want to write them down in your notes, that would be good as well. So let's apply some of these conclusions of what we've seen as we've surveyed the various texts and synthesized the findings and clarified or crafted a definition. Let's apply the conclusions now. First one, conscience, brothers and sisters, is a gift. Conscience is a gift from our God. It's actually one of the marks of being made in the image of God. It's one of the chief characteristics of being made in the image of God. Now, it's not to say that in the animal kingdom there are not evidences of certain kinds of conscience at work. We can certainly see that, I think. If you train a dog well and the dog disobeys you, there will be a sense of shame, especially among certain breeds of dogs, and it's fascinating to see that. But as, as, you, as image bearers of God, which the animal kingdom is not, but as dignified and glorious as God's creation in the animal kingdom is, nevertheless, human beings bear the unique gift of conscience. And since conscience is a gift, you should always, always obey it, even when it's wrong. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But the Bible teaches, as we'll see in the coming weeks, that to go against your conscience when you think it's warning you correctly is always sin. Even if it's not warning you correctly, according to God's word because you have a weak conscience. Nevertheless, you must follow it. You must do what it says. Even if the action itself is not a sin, but your conscience is telling you it is, obey your conscience. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks about why that's the case, but let me say this much right now. 
Why do I say that? Because your intention, your intention would be to sin if you violated your conscience. It's, so say, for instance, um, that you find a wallet on the ground, and you're convinced that that wallet belonged to somebody else, and you picked up the wallet and you took the money out, and you threw the wallet down on the ground and you walked away. But little, lo and behold, later on, you realized, wait, I don't have my wallet. And you realize you stole money from yourself. And you threw your wallet on the ground? Is that sin? Yes. Why? Because you took your own money? No, because you intended to steal. That's why. So that's an example of how the conscience, I mean, your conscience was convicting you in that moment. Shouldn't do that, shouldn't do that, shouldn't do that, shouldn't do it anyway. Oh, but I found out later, well, it's mine. I didn't take anything. I mean, it's just mine. But no, your intention was to steal, so you sinned against your conscience, and you sinned against God in doing so. You should do what your conscience says until you're convinced from Scripture that it needs adjusting. Always do what your conscience says unless you're convinced from Scripture that it needs adjusting. John MacArthur says, Conscience is a built-in warning system that signals to us when we've done something wrong. It is our soul's pain is it is to our souls what pain sensors are to our bodies it inflicts distress we call that guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tell us is right so the conscience is the pain sensors of the soul it's the warning system of the soul and it's a gift god has given to us because we are made in his image We are made in his image, and since God is a God who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, by creation, we are made that way. We are now, in our fallenness, we call good evil and evil good. Behold our culture. Behold what remains of sin in our own hearts. We call, we we don't get it right. But nevertheless, we are moral beings. We can't help being so. We are We are judges to the core. We evaluate behavior, our own, others, and pronounce judgments upon it because we have a conscience and because we are made in the image of God and because that conscience is a gift. Even when it goes haywire, even when the fall affects it in some pretty radical ways that we'll see in coming weeks, it is still a gift of God. It is still to be received as such. It is still to be obeyed. That's the first conclusion. Secondly, Conscience is personal. Conscience is personal. God has given you your conscience. You have a conscience. Imagine that that you have a, a huge spectrum, and God has placed all the human consciences within that spectrum. Now, there is certainly in that spectrum a Jesus Christ conformed conscience that is absolutely perfect, but no Christian in this age has it. We are all on the spectrum somewhere. We are all on the spectrum of some of us have a weak, defiled, seared, dead, wounded conscience. Some of us have a good, clean, clear conscience. And some of us are in the middle of that and we're operating, I would say most of us are in the middle of that, operating at some degree in between. But the point is, is that your conscience is personal. Your conscience is intended for you and nobody else. It is your warning system between you and God. It is 
your pain sensors between you and God. The conscience of others belongs to God and them, not to you. The Lord has not made man the Lord of anyone else's conscience. The Lord and the Lord alone is Lord of the conscience. You cannot and must not force others to adopt your conscience standards. Now, that does not mean that the conscience and that whatever a person feels in their conscience is always right and is never sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the conscience and the way it functions. It is meant to function as a personal thing between God and the person. Now, it certainly has, as we'll see in coming weeks, interpersonal outworkings, relational outworkings. But the point is, as Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 and other places, is where the conscience begins to go haywire is when people start taking what is personal and making it interpersonal and bringing other people under their conscience standards and seeking to make them obey the conscience of one Christian or a group of Christians. Paul has a big problem with that, a big, big problem with that because it's a huge threat to church unity it's a huge threat to Christian freedom. It's a huge threat to, threat to liberty of the conscience. It's a huge threat to the word, of, word and work of the Spirit of God and the life of God's people. So conscience is personal. Number three, conscience is diverse. No two Christians have the exact same conscience. If so, we wouldn't need Romans 14 and we wouldn't need 1 Corinthians 8. Paul devotes a whole chapter in the book of Romans and a whole chapter, almost a chapter and a half, in the book of Corinthians to talking about the relationship of the consciences in the, in the Christian church. And we wouldn't need those chapters if every Christian had the same conscience. But they don't. And we don't. And we'll see that in upcoming weeks. The conscience is a gift. The conscience is personal. The conscience is diverse. That is, the way we as God's people interact with our consciences and where our consciences are in relationship to their conformity to God's word is not equal. All of us have areas of conscience that are out of conformity with Scripture and need to be brought into conformity with Scripture. Number four, conscience is imperfect. That's kind of a no-brainer. That, that's a conclusion of it being diverse. But no, here's the point. No one's conscience perfectly matches God's word. Perfectly matches God's will. What you believe is right and wrong is not necessarily the same as what is actually right or wrong. So the point is, where God has clearly spoken in Scripture about sin and righteousness, if your conscience does not accuse you of that, your conscience is wrong. We have people redefining marriage, sexuality, all sorts of things. And some, even within, I mean, less so now um, in Christian circles, but trying to say what the Bible doesn't say. And, or just say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, and I'm not going to obey it. Or I don't agree that that's what the Bible says, and it's a clear statement of the Bible. My conscience doesn't accuse me of that. Well, I'm sorry, the conscience is imperfect. The conscience doesn't always render you guilty when you are. But nevertheless... The conscience can also, and this can be more common in, in, in people that have very, very sensitive consciences, maybe to lots of different things, but in the church, you can have a hypersensitive conscience that calls sin what it isn't. Well, that's kind of like sin. 
I mean, I know God hasn't said anything about it, but it kind of looks and smells like sin, so you shouldn't do it either. And that's, that's a violation. Who made you, Lord, all of a sudden to be able to dictate the morality of the universe? That's not what God has said. I'm sorry that your conscience condemns you, and I'm going to love you in that, and you should follow it, but you should not bind other people's consciences to make you do what God has not said. So that's how the conscience is imperfect. Our conscience is only trustworthy when it does not lead us to choose our will over God's will. Number five, two more. Conscience is malleable. That is, it's changeable. It's able to be changed. And that's good news and bad news. It's bad news in the sense that the conscience can get worse. The conscience can become weak. The conscience can become defiled. The conscience can become seared. The conscience can become wounded. That's all bad. That's not good. But that's the reality of the fact that the conscience is malleable, that it's changeable, that it can be impacted. It can be affected such that the way we view the world is fundamentally opposed to God, and we don't even know it because we've wounded, weakened, defiled, seared our consciences. But it can also, and the good news is, is that it can be brought into greater conformity to God's word such that we live out our true Christian freedom and are not held in bondage by the yoke of slavery that men try to put on us. But nevertheless, we can operate before the Lord in faith and a good conscience, walking clean, clean and pure before him, knowing that we have his approval and his smile upon us because we are seeking to conform our lives to his word. And he and he alone is the final judge and arbiter of our lives. So conscience cannot be our final ethical authority because God's word alone is unchangeable and infallible and the conscience is not. The conscience is not infallible. It is not unchangeable. Therefore, it cannot be the ultimate ethical authority. God's word and God's word alone is that for us, which leads us to our final conclusion. Conscience is not ultimate. God is. God is the only Lord of the conscience. If God, the Lord of your conscience, shows you through his word that your conscience is registering a mistaken moral judgment, and if you believe he wants you to adjust your conscience to better match his will, your conscience must bend to God. It must. He and he alone is ultimate. He sets the dictates of what should inform the good and evil that our conscience is speaking to us, which means that one of the main applications from this sermon is that we must saturate our minds in the Bible. Saturate your mind, in the, not just in verses, but in the way the Scripture thinks about life, about marriage, about family, about church, about civil engagement, about society, about work, about all the dimensions of your life. Think how Scripture thinks and strive more and more. As, and, and, and as you do that, you're going to encounter wrestling because you'll encounter Scripture and you say, wow, I had no idea. I'm convicted by that. I'm sharpened by that. I need to repent. I need to change my mind about that. I've been living as though God didn't say that, and he did. Or I've been living as though God did say that, and he didn't. 
He never said that. And we shape our minds and we conform them more to Scripture. So that is the big closing application, is saturate in an ongoing, continual way your mind in the Word of God so that your conscience can be more guided by it. That's where we'll leave off this morning. Let's pray together and then we'll stand to sing God's praise again. Father, we are grateful to you and thankful to you for giving us a conscience. Thank you. For those of us who have experienced your salvation in Christ, we thank you for what you've done to our consciences as a result of his work. Thank you for cleaning them. Thank you for clearing them. Thank you for perfecting them. Thank you for cleansing them. Thank you for purifying them. Thank you for washing them and purging them and sprinkling them clean. For those of us who sit here this morning outside of Jesus Christ in need of his salvation and who have a guilty conscience and who recognize that before you and your holiness that they don't stand a chance. May the offer of a clean conscience be winsome to them. May you use the gospel offer of a clean conscience, a pure conscience, a right conscience, a good conscience that can be given to you, that can be given to all those who trust in Christ. May you use that to draw some to yourself. And would you give those of us who are your own grace to maintain consciences that are good and blameless and clear and clean and pure? Please give us grace and wisdom to calibrate all of our convictions about specific matters of conscience to your word so that we might become more scripturally informed. Please give us grace and wisdom to love our brothers and sisters with whom we disagree about matters of conscience. And we ask you all, we ask you to do this all in the name of our glorious conscience cleanser, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.